thankful that I'm here to share with you what God has placed in my heart. And um, I'm just going to open with a prayer, you know, to give God thanks and to enable us to really focus on Him for all He's done for us and also what He's continued to do for us. And so if you just want to either close your eyes or just um, for a moment while I pray. Heavenly Father, as we come before you, we just ask in you now, dear Lord, that you will make our hearts receptive to your word, your word which is life itself. And we just ask in you, dear Lord, that it's not just be something that stimulates our minds, but it's something that will really transform our lives as we seek to grow closer to your son, Jesus Christ. And so, Lord, just now take full command of everything and every aspect that is done that your name will be glorified, as we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Right. A little bit of history. Um, I guess some of you perhaps been caught up with all the, uh, what I would say, a bit of a farce surrounding the Mayweather-McGregor fight. I say a farce because, quite frankly... Okay, I am not going to give the result. Yes, I certainly will not. Yeah, yes, right. But I'll just use it as part of the background of the next. But anyway, you, you perhaps have, um, you know, I'm sure at some point um, through the media, I've heard about the huge build-up. I say a fast because I'm someone who brought up in a household where boxing, second to cricket, was almost like a religion. Um, couldn't quite actually couldn't quite somehow enthuse me because I felt it was a mismatch. But anyway, you want to remember that you're, I'm sure you've all been, in some sense, been exposed to that hype. You know, you know, what a very, very smart way to earn a huge amount of money and generate a huge amount of income. But let me just cast your mind back to 1974, October 1974. And um, Muhammad Ali, who at the time was the most famous human person on the planet, uh, alive. And um, he was bidding to regain the world heavyweight title. And um, he was up against a boxer, George Foreman. And George Foreman was known to be the most ferocious puncher you've ever seen in boxing. This man actually took the title from another very boxing great in Jamaica in 73, where he actually lifted him off the ground with a punch. That's how powerful a puncher he was. And everyone had more or less says, you know, Muhammad Ali stood no chance because, you know, Foreman was just too powerful a boxer, younger by seven years, you know, and much more fitter, etc. But those of us who perhaps were around, like Ken, <laughs> can recall how Muhammad Ali went into the ring, and it was a case of brain versus brawn. Outsmarted Foreman, and allowed Foreman basically to outpunch himself till he was so exhausted by the seventh round that all Muhammad Ali had to do was just go and just give him a slight punch, and he was out and down, totally out. And there we have what's now known in boxing history as Rumble in the Jungle. Right, but let me tell you about even a greater claim to a contest that took place between 
Jesus and Satan, which I term rumble in the desert. The battle of the ages, because we know what happened now. Satan and one third of the heavenly host was cast out of heaven. And he has seen himself as principally the main opponent of God. Right? And here we have now a situation where Jesus had actually been on a 40-day fast. And Satan thought, right, this is an opportunity in which to attack Jesus. So I'm just going to read briefly the account in Matthew from the contemporary English version. And then I'll just kind of expand and um, share with you a bit more from that particular encounter. Now, yes, chapter 4, verse 1 to 11. The Holy Spirit led Jesus into the desert so that the devil could test him. After Jesus had gone without eating for 40 days and nights, he was very hungry. Then the devil came to him and said, If you are God's son, tell these stones to turn into bread. Jesus answered, The scripture says, No one can live only on food. People need every word that God has spoken. Next, the devil took Jesus to the holy city and made him stand on the highest part of the temple. The devil said, if you are God's son, jump off. The scripture says, and this is Jesus, Jesus said, God will give, no, the scripture says, God will give his angels orders about you. They will catch you in their arms and you won't hurt your feet on the stones. Jesus answered, the scriptures also say, don't try to test the Lord your God. Finally, the devil took Jesus up on a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms on earth and their power. The devil said to him, I'll give you all these, I'll give all this to you if you will bow down and worship me. Jesus answered, go away, Satan. The scriptures say, Worship the Lord your God and serve only him. Then the devil left Jesus and angels came to help him. There are times in our struggle when we become weary and weakened and susceptible, susceptible to the temptations on our Christian journey. Amen. You know, it happens to every one of us. It happened to Jesus, so yes, temptations is part of the Christian journey. And we can get a lesson from life of Jesus about how to actually you know um, resist temptation there we have it Jesus soon after his baptism you could almost say in a sense his initiation into the role of being now doing his way to becoming the savior on the way to the cross started off with his baptism an example for us not that Jesus had any sin but just that to actually be an example to us of what baptism means. Now, I'm sure Pastor Robert, somebody will explore that a bit more further. And if you look on some of the, um, our website, you will see, you know, detailed account of that very in matter, that very incident where Jesus was baptized and why Jesus needed to baptize. But that isn't the purpose for our message today. So Jesus had been baptized. He's been led out by the Spirit in the wilderness and undertook 40 days of fasting. Jesus was, in essence, preparing himself for his formal ministry on earth as he journeyed to the cross. So it's all related 
It's not something that just happened incidentally by chance. Every aspect of Jesus' life is part of his journey to the cross. And no different here when he had actually um, been baptized, is now into the desert where Satan was about to tempt him. Now it's quite interesting that Satan, obviously, not by any stretch of the imagination, right, a being of low intelligence. Satan has an intelligence far more than any of us could ever imagine. Satan was very smart, very clever. Remember, if you know anything about his previous history in heaven, right, he occupied one of the highest positions. That means both in terms of beauty, in terms of intellect, and in terms of glory, etc. And he didn't lose all of that when he was cast out of heaven. So here he is, he perhaps says, right, you know, this man, you know, he has been fasting. Right, let's tempt him with food. Because food, most basic of our needs. Right, and I'm sure some of us can sometimes relate to that. You know, sometimes when we're down, we're at a point of weakness. That Satan attacks us at that point and at that place. So here we have him now trying Jesus in a similar way. And it's the temptation of the senses, the temptation of the appetite. And in some ways it's the most common, it's the most dangerous. You know, he attacks where we are, are quite oftentimes susceptible. Our appetites, our desires, our needs. Right? He seeks to exploit that. And here he's trying the same thing with Jesus. And here he says, come on these stones. He says, go on. You, you, yeah, you have the power. Come on, these stones to turn into bread, right? And you'd have thought, oh, right. Uh, Jesus would have, right, you know what? I need to eat or something. Or some of us perhaps in a similar situation says, you know what? Yes, I need to actually, first of all, satisfy my appetite. But no, um, Jesus told him straight up, right? Man does not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds of God. So Jesus is putting into perspective which is far more important. It's the word of God that is far more important than even his own nutritional need. Now, interesting. Now, Satan didn't simply say to Jesus, oh, you're hungry, go and eat. Um, because he knew that at some point Jesus would have, would have to eat. Jesus knew also he would have to eat. What Satan was actually doing was really seeking to tempt Jesus to, use, to, mis, to misuse his miraculous powers. He didn't just say, oh, go and eat because you're not hungry. Of course Jesus is human. Of course he's hungry. Of course he's going to eat later on. What Satan was actually doing was saying, you know what? You have the power. Misuse it. Turn bread in, you know, turn stone into bread, you know. Attend to your immediate gratification. But Jesus resisted. And it's a lesson there for us that what do we do when we are in a situation that we need our immediate gratification satisfied? You know, some years ago, um, a team of psychologists did experiment with a group of toddlers. And in this experiment, they placed a child and close to the child, they place one of the child's favorite confectionery and went out to the room. But before they went out to the room, said to the child, do not touch or do not eat or do not <laughs> eat the confectionery. 
And if you do, you'll get a reward. A small percentage of the children couldn't resist actually taking a bit of confectionery and consuming it and eating it. And, okay, I know you, um, you know, social scientists here will begin to critique, but what the psychologists interpreted from that kind of um, outcome was this. The children who was able to delay their gratification were not a longitudinal study, I mean a study that was followed up with them 15 years later, were found to be in a much more productive stage of life compared to those who just could not resist, you could say, the temptation to actually consume, to actually you know, satisfy their appetite immediately. So what they're basically saying is right, for children, one of the ways in which they learn about setting positive goals is by learning to actually delay their gratification. And after all, you know, most of us have been at school, university, and other places of learning, and also in other sense. We know that if we want something that is of um, greater value, it means making immediate sacrifices in order to achieve it. And it's something that obviously we need to instill in children from very young age. It says, right, you need to learn how to wait, you need to be patient. You need to delay that gratification. And even for teenagers, even when it comes to issues to do with sex, issues to do with you know, other things, right? One of the things they need to develop and learn and inculcate within the way of approaching decisions is how to delay gratification. So here we have a situation where Satan was saying to Jesus, don't delay gratification, use your miraculous powers, you know, change these stone into bread. But Jesus countered him by saying, to him, no, 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 the word of God, right? Yeah, supersedes any of my basic needs. So that's the first lesson for us, right? That even though we have basic needs, yeah, living off the word of God is paramount. Satan then goes on with the second temptation, realizing that he had utterly failed in his attempt to induce Jesus to use his divine powers for personal gratification. Satan went to the other extreme and tempted Jesus to willfully throw himself upon the Father's protection. So he took Jesus right up you know, to the holy city, to the highest pinnacle in Jerusalem, that is the temple, at the top of the temple. And says, if thou be the son of God, cast thyself down. For it is written, he shall give his angels charge concerning thee. And in their hands they shall bear thee up, lest at any time thou dash thy foot against a stone. So he's, he's obviously speaking, you know, referring to Psalms chapter 91, verse 11 to 12. And you see again, right, Satan, as I said to you, very, very, Smart, very, very, you know, he knows how to misuse scripture. I mean, I'm sure, I mean, Mikey P, when we sometimes even go out and evangelize, you come up against people, right, who knows the scripture very well. They have a very distorted view. They know how to use the scripture, right? Not so much to bring them closer to God, to get away from God, to try to somehow get one over you, so to speak. And here we have Satan, right, trying to use the scripture to somehow, if you like, corner Jesus. But once more, we see Jesus respond to him 
right? By saying, thou shall not, right? You know, you know Jesus responded to him in so, much, in so many ways as to, as, as to basically say, no, no, no. Because you see, what was Satan aiming to do? What was his motive? Right? Again, he was seeking for Jesus to manipulate Jesus to actually, right, called upon the supernatural power of God. Now, some of you, I'm sure, will be aware that we live in a time and live in a world, even within the wider context of Christianity, where people seem to want to see the spectacular. They want to see miracles. So, for instance, I'm sure if Pastor Rob wanted this place, you know, overflowing, all he needs to perhaps do is just, you know, get together, <laughs> you know, a few, what I should say, um, tricks, right? as if to say that they're miracles, and my word, people will be queuing up. And people want to see the spectacular. You know, this whole issue of actually taking him up to the high pinnacle is quite interesting because it, it brought to me a, something which happened um, in Jamaica over a century ago. Now, in Jamaica, in just around the time of the First World War, there was an interesting character named Alexander Bedwood. And he had a following of in excess of 20,000. Probably, I'm sure even those of you of Jamaican lineage may not have heard of him. Anyway, he had a following of something like about 20,000. And one of those happened to have been my grandfather at the time. And um, his main audience came from in and around right, the poorer regions of Kingston. And sadly, many of these people were drawn to him because there was all these kind of um, claims that there were supernatural things happening through his ministry. And um, on one occasion, he was challenged to see whether or not he could actually fly from the top of a tree. And he actually went to the top of a very tall tree in Jamaica, and only God knows how he only ended up with two broken legs. Uh, he was subsequently, you know, uh, given a mental health assessment as a result. <laughs> and, yeah, afterwards he fell into discredit and um, never again did he ever command the following of anywhere near 20,000 people. So you see what sometimes happens when yeah, you sometimes take you know, God's name in vain. And so we see here Satan was, in essence, once again trying to put Jesus on the spot and says, right, make your father do a miracle to save you, right? Yeah? But Jesus clearly responded to him and says, no, 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 right? So... What is the lesson there for us, right? It shouldn't rely upon miracles to determine our faith, right? Yeah. It should be faith that determines the miracle, right? The greatest miracle of all is not even to see somebody physically brought back to life as Jesus himself had performed. The greatest miracle of all has happened to every one of us here 
who have come to know Jesus as Lord and Savior. That's the miracle of being saved by his blood. That is the greatest miracle of all. Right? So yes, God still do miracles. I still believe. Because the Bible says, yesterday, today and forever. God never changed. Jesus never changed. The God who parted the Red Sea. Right? The God who brought Lazarus back from the dead hasn't changed. His power hasn't diminished. Right? But we as believers do not rely upon seeing the supernatural at work to confirm our faith. Right? We rely upon our relationship with Jesus Christ, what he's doing in our lives, what he's doing in our heart, what he has done for us. Right? So here we have it, you know, Satan wanted Jesus to use that power, God used power, but Jesus resisted once more. And Jesus answered him with scripture, it is written, thou shalt not tempt the Lord thy God. So again, Jesus has thwarted Satan, attempt to somehow outmaneuver him, and Jesus became the victor. In the third temptation, the devil casts away all subtlety and scripture and all deviness and disguise. And what he did was he took Jesus again at a high place and showed Jesus all the kings of the world and the glory of them. I, I just imagine that Satan was perhaps, you know, taking Jesus through history from the very dawn, right, of civilization, you could say, right up to the end and showing him all, right? Because we're talking about, you know, even though I said, right, let us not kind of um, be so preoccupied. But we, it was a supernatural encounter. There's no doubt about it. There's aspects to it that we don't even understand. We only, God only gives us what we can understand and what we need to understand. But it was something that I think you can't fully comprehend even just in the word here. Right? It was something far beyond anything we could imagine, this encounter. You know, imagine you know, Satan there taking Jesus and says, right, this I'm showing you everything, every aspect of you know, what this world entails. Right? And saying, right, right, if you will worship me, Right? I will make these all available to you. These, yeah, I will give them to you. And, but the question is, I'm sure those of you who know your scripture news that, you know, here we have the Son of God, creator of all things, right? power over life, yeah. power over death. And he's then offering him something in this world. Because I, I once asked somebody who was trying to, um, you know, uh, somehow um, convince me about uh, Jesus um, being a very well-to-do merchant and, you know, their scripture. I asked him a question. I asked this person's question, and he was trying to convince me. He said, oh, yes, you know, Jesus was right, a very successful businessman. Jesus, right, had access to millions. Jesus was somebody. But, uh, so I, 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 I stopped and asked the person. I said, just answer me one question. What value or what purpose would somebody who can actually bring back somebody from the dead, what value would any sort of money or wealth be? I says, compare the two. He can call up a man after, that was dead for four days and says, come back to life. What need does he need money? <laughs> Please, right? 
Yeah, this was about five years ago. And this person's a friend, and this person has never come back with an answer. Right? <laughs> so it makes me wonder, right, why was it that Satan would dare somehow try to tempt Jesus with her for glory? But of course, very important, and I will reiterate this point later, he was, in essence, attacking the human side of Jesus, not the divine side. Right? The, remember the first miracle with, I'm sorry, the first temptation, right, with food? It's the human side, because God doesn't need, yeah, God doesn't need nutritional satisfaction. He doesn't live off those same context as we do. But Jesus as fully human, as a full man, just like the rest of us, he needed to eat. Similar thing, if we went up on a high mountain, again, the human Jesus would need to have climbed up there the same way the any of us, and the human Jesus could not have just got down and fly, because he actually allowed himself to have those human limitations exposing him. So here we have it again, you know, he's showing him all the glitter, all the kind of things within the natural world, applying, you know, appealing to the human side of him once more, right? So we have here Satan's ploy. Yeah, he was falling back on one of the most fundamental of propositions, and that is everyone has a price that material things matters most. Now, um, some of you, like um, I'm sure relatives of mine that you're a long-standing friend, know that I have um, a certain passion for a game called cricket. And um, back in about 40 years ago, um, cricket is one of those sports which has a very long aristocratic traditional history. And about 40 years ago, an Australian tycoon by the name of Kerry Packer decided, right, you know what, we're going to shake up the establishment because um, cricket has oftentimes been of greater claim to the aristocrats and the um, upper class, etc. And this Australian says, right, you know what, I'm going to use my wealth to shake up the whole establishment. And someone says, no, 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 you're up against, you know, empire, you're up against history, you're up against tradition, etc. And Kerry Packer quoted these very famous words, right? Every man has his price, <laughs> right? <laughs> and so we see here that Satan, once again, using that ploy, thinking that, oh, yes, you know, man, if I, if I offered enough, right, of this material value, yeah, Jesus will succumb, right? His human side is like all other human beings, right? Yeah. Keep offering more, keep offering more. Eventually, yeah, he will actually name his price, accept an offer. But Satan did not obviously realize that this was the same man who later preached, for what shall it profit a man if he shall gain the whole world and lose his own soul? Or what shall a man give in exchange for his soul. Right? He perhaps didn't realize that at the time. Right? But Jesus didn't now somehow seek to kind of um, 
have any kind of dialogue with him. Just went straight to the point. Get thee and Satan, for it is written, Thou shalt worship the Lord thy God, and him only shalt thou serve. So Jesus went straight to what matters most, worship. In other words, Satan was seeking to get him to worship him, to worship the things of this world. Right? But Jesus went straight to the heart, straight to the juggler, says, No, 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 Satan. Right? It is the worship of God. That is paramount. Right? And so it's a question there for us, a letter there for us. Who do we truly worship? Who is the priority in our lives? Even as believers, do our material interests take priority over the things of God? Now, don't misunderstand. Jesus was not saying being a Christian and being wealthy is necessarily contradictory to right, what God has laid out in his word or what God can do in the life of a believer. Who have ever heard, I'm sure all of you, if I went into your home, you perhaps may have a box of Kellogg's or a tin of Vines, or if you like Mikey P, you go to Clark's, shoes, etc. Or whenever you've been into a lift, you perhaps noticed the name that was there, the name Otis. Yeah, have anybody ever seen that, the name right? Okay, now, what is, what is interesting and what is remarkable about those four brand names which I've just quoted? You know, Kellogg, Eins, Clarks. Right, you know, Pastor Rob in Jamaica, Clarks. Boy, if you mention Clarks, oh my word. Yes? <laughs> right? Right, and Otis, Thomas Cook. These were all founded and established by Christians. And when doing a little bit of research showed me that, right? For them, it was not about acquiring wealth for their own gratification or for their status. It was acquiring wealth unto the glory of God. Like Otis, right? Founder, the person who invented the system that we know as a lift or elevators if you're in America. He tried, is that a master heart give God? He would say, right, this amount is for me. This is amount for my business. This is the amount I use for my own personal needs. And this amount would go to the God. And he kept giving God, giving work to the work of God, you know, giving, 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 giving. And he thought, oh, right. Um, he started to feel a little bit uncomfortable because he says he's just giving, giving, giving. But yet, he noticed that God kept giving him an increase until he had, right, a challenge to his heart by God. And God asked him the question, do you really believe you can truly outgive me? <laughs> After all, it is me who gave you what you have in the first place. Right? So just give what I have placed on your heart in faith and leave the rest to me. Right? So it's not, I'm not saying for one moment, neither does the scripture, that being a Christian doesn't mean that God doesn't bless you for well. God choose through his wisdom who he will bless accordingly but it is in order that it will be used for the building of his kingdom and if i just share with you the example of one particular individual that i find stand out most of all um i mentioned i shared with you some several years ago a man named william kiffin who lived in the 16th century and william kiffin 
started off in a very humble beginnings, but God gave him the gift of creating wealth. And so outstanding he was at creating wealth that William Kiffin accumulated enough wealth that he could loan money to the then King of England. But it also triggered off a lot of resentment and animosity from members within the established church. And they did everything they conceivably could to get rid of William Kiffin. But it wasn't because of William Kiffin had a gift for wealth why they particularly targeted him. Why they particularly targeted William Kiffin was because William Kiffin, at the time, was a firm believer in the word of God. He saw the corruption in the established church that was going on. And he saw the persecution that was happening to Christians. Because at that time, believe it or not, you could not have a translation of the Bible in anything else but the King James Version. Right? You could be, you could be sent to prison. And before that, if you had a Bible that was in English, you could have been burnt at the stake. Now, William Kiffin, once he began to look in the Word of God, he says, no, no, no. This is what the Word of God said. The, the established church says this, but this is what the Word of God says. And so William Kiffin started to use a lot of his wealth to finance Bible-believing fellowships, to finance students who would go away and study to be approved, to be themselves messengers of the Word of God. And just to kind of underline how much God bless him, how long did you think William Kiffin lived until? How long? This is, you remember, we're talking about the 16th century when the average life expectancy would have been about 40. Uh, yeah. William Kiffin lived until he was 88. But during that time, sadly, he saw a number of his family members who was actually wrongly accused and executed. But the only reason why they did not quite execute and murder because he still had a good relationship with the then monarch of England. And the monarch was only interested in Kiffin's ability to create wealth. But I am convinced that that was a gift that God gave Kiffin and today, we sat here, hearing from God's word. We go home, we read our Bibles. I hope we all go home and we read our Bible in our own time. Right? Yeah, we go to fellowships which actually place the word of God at the center of the ministry. We are, in a sense, beneficiaries of those seeds that William Kiffin planted you know, four, over 500 years ago. But it would have been very difficult if it wasn't the fact that God had given him the capacity and the gift to create wealth, to invest in his kingdom. So 
We don't actually, and I don't say anywhere in the Word of God where it says that it is necessarily ungodly to actually uh, be a Christian and be wealthy or to have that gift. So some of you who may well have that gift, I'm not looking at you, Bertram, <laughs> right? Don't feel guilty. Don't feel uncomfortable. As long as it is to the glory of God and you know in your heart that it is there for his service, be thankful. And those of us who know and are people... Be thankful for those people because they have their role in the building of the kingdom. So, back to the conclusion of our message today. As we look through these temptations, we can see that Satan was making these very subtle inferences. If you notice, he was always somehow implying, putting doubt Right of Jesus' claim to be the Son of God. You notice each time, if thou be the Son of God, command these stones be made to bread. You know, in verse 3. Again, if thou be the Son of God, cast thyself down. Right? All the time, continually attacking the human side of Jesus. You say you're the Son of God, bam, right. You said you're the Son of God, etc., etc. That is still very much an issue even today because... When I speak to um, uh, friends, associates, acquaintances um, um, from the faith of Islam, they struggle with this notion of God, Jesus being the son of God. Because as far as they're concerned, God has no children. So how can this man claim to be the son of God? Right. So it's still an issue today in one of the world's major religion. Who is this Jesus? And here we have Satan seeking to plant seeds of doubt in the human Jesus. Are you really the son of God? Right? And ultimately, again, when Jesus come to the cross, right? If you remember what they were chanting, what were they saying? If thou be the son of God, come down off the cross. Right? So you see, his very, very identity, his very, very essence of who he was from eternity was being cast into doubt. And we see Satan there seeking to attack Jesus based on his divinity. Because again, I, I find, you know, um, I don't know, Mike P, perhaps Byron, see it. Um, when you're some, with sometimes witnessing or evangelizing and sharing the gospel, one of the things people struggle with is the claim to divinity. Yes, they will quite gladly say, yeah, Jesus was a good man. Jesus was an excellent teacher. Jesus was a wonderful counselor. But when you now speak about Jesus was divine, Jesus is divine, right? As we sang today in our, one of our songs, right? Jesus is ultimate. They really struggle with that above all, right? But that is so vital, but central to our Christian faith. That is so vital to our worship. That is so vital to our being because why? If Jesus is not divine, it means that he has limitations that can only go so far to assist us, to help us. So for instance, my doctor, right, qualified in medicine, and certainly I have a lot of confidence in her expertise in medicine. However, if I am perhaps suffering from some sort of um, emotional breakdown, 
I may not necessarily have the same confidence in my doctor, because why? She doesn't have the same expertise in, dare I say, psychiatry, or counseling, or something of that kind. So, she has certain limitations. She has certain expertise, but she has certain limitations. And Jesus, being the Son of God, being divine, it means he is all-sufficient. He is all-able. It means every aspect of our life, no matter what they are. Right? Jesus is more than able to attend to, to address. There isn't one like That's why it's so crucial that we, as we go on in our Christian journey, to grow in the knowledge and appreciation of his lordship. It's not him about taking a dictator, taking, becoming a dictator in your life. It's not about him becoming an autocrat. It's not about him controlling you. No, no, no. Because in essence, it's a relationship we have. But within that relationship, relationship with either, deteriorate or it either grow. It doesn't just stand still. It's either growing or it's either deteriorating. But as we as believers, we have the opportunity. We are invited to grow in our relationship with Jesus. And as we grow more, we, we should come to understand and appreciate more that he's an all-encompassing Lord. He can... Address every need, every circumstance, every situation without any shortcomings. So let us not somehow be troubled by these questions. Is this really something I can bring to you, Lord? Is this something really I can bring to you? Oh, no, no, no. I've brought this one. Oh, Lord, no, no, no. God is all sufficient. Jesus is all sufficient. Right. Now, just in my final notes, and speaking of these three temptations, I, I was hoping that um, the quote would have been up, but um, you know, unfortunately, it didn't. Um, there was a breakdown in, I think, my communication and the technical team. But a president of one of the uh, major universities in, in America wants just to sum up what these temptations entails, and this is what he said. I just um, read it slowly what he says and just for you to kind of get some insight from it right he says now when you look at these three temptations they come to us in almost every facet of life whether it be in our homes whether it's been our jobs whether it's been our neighborhood whether it's been our relationships or dealing with everyday life so what we saw was happening in jesus situation is a model of what's going to happen <laughs> to all of us. It's all those three. He's saying basically, right, those three temptations you can use to chart how every human person is tempted in one way or the other. Right? He attacks our appetites. Right? He attacks our aspirations. Right? Yeah? It attacks even those kind of um, periods when things seems to be not going well and we'd like something 
better to happen. For instance, I'm, I don't know if any of you are aware of what depression is, but depression is where there is a huge difference between what a person desires and their ability to achieve them. And the greater the gap between those two is the more the person implodes, is the more the person becomes discontented, the more the person becomes disenchanted, the more the person becomes distressed. So you find many people who are suffering is because this is where they're at, this is where they'd like to be, but somehow they can't get from point A to point B. They don't seem to think they have the capacity or anyone has the capacity to help them. So what then happens? They become consumed by there seems apparent inability to achieve their aspirations. And so we find that, as, in, as I said, these temptations in some sense, in a broad way of speaking, is what all of us in one way or the other is affected by as we go on in our journey in life. Waiting is always going to attack us in one of those three areas. But Jesus never leave us alone. He overcame Satan in the desert. He overcame him time and time again on the journey to the cross and ultimately defeated him on the cross. And he can defeat him every time he seek to attack us on our life journey. He never leaves us to fight the battle on our own. A lot of times we get into trouble, we get into difficulties, we get into quandaries. Because why? We seek to fight the battle in our own strength, in our own flesh. Right? Rather than looking unto the Lordship of Christ who will give us the strength, who will give us the power, and who will fight our battle. And all he asks for us is just to obey. So, I'd just like to pray and just ask you, you know, that whatever your struggle you're going through, right, with trials, with temptations, sin, whatever, Right. You can approach Jesus in confidence, right? Because he understands, he knows. True is human trials. He understands and knows what you are going through, what I am going through. He can empathize, he can relate to it. Because he himself was target of similar kind of temptations, but he never yielded. So he can also give us a victory. So no matter how many times you are fallen, if you look to him, he will pick you up. And he will, if you're willing, right, to give you the strength to defeat Satan when he comes again. When he knows wherever you, if he thinks that you're weak, right, Jesus will give you the strength. Right? And then we can, just as the psalmist says, in chapter 1, 
Blessed is the man that walketh not in the counsel of the ungodly, nor standeth in the way of sinners. Right? We can also sing, we can also read that psalm victoriously. No matter what, no matter where you are on that journey. Right? Jesus is able to start again with you on your way to his kingdom. Shall we pray? Jesus, how much can we say thank you? For not only did you leave us the perfect example of how we can live a life worthy unto the Father, but you, Lord, went to the cross willingly in full obedience and paid the price for our sins, Lord, to enable us to be reconciled with you and the Father. And so, Lord, you know every individual that is here today, Lord. They're not here by accident. They're not here by chance. They're here because of your divine invitation. I'm just asking you, dear Lord, that you will minister to each heart, to each life. Equip them, strengthen them. But even more so, Lord, remind them that you are always close by. You're never too busy. You're never distracted. You never have an off day. You never have a moment of lapse of concentration. You are constantly vigilant. You are there all the time for us, no matter what, because you know the formidable enemy that we're up against. But only you alone has the power and the authority, as you did on that time in the desert, to defeat him. And yet again, you constantly continue to defeat him, Lord, through our lives, Lord. And we're just asking you, dear Lord, that whoever is going through a difficult time, Whoever is going through times when they do not know where next to turn, that, Lord, you will bring that comfort, that relief, Lord, that you are there. You are the great. You are the wonderful counselor. You are the prince of peace. Yes, you are the lion, the conquering lion of children, but, Lord, you are also the one who comes to minister to our hearts, Lord, to minister to our needs. And so, Lord, as we reach out to you now, Lord, just asking you, dear Lord, that through your mercy and through your grace, you will once more restore us. You will once more pick us up and put us back on our feet as we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Join us next time for more of God's truth to transform your reality.